0: You know, one of those places where you see reflections of yourself or other people from all sorts of angles at the exact same time. I've seen them at carnivals. Uh, I've played laser tag in places that have mirrors all around, so not exactly the same, but similar. I did go through one at a butterfly house in Branson. And it's funny because people tend to walk a little bit slower in those mazes full of mirrors because they aren't quite sure is this a mirror or an opening between these two pillars. And so this week I had some fun watching some videos of kids running into mirrors or glass panels in these mazes. So I just did a Google search and looked at these things. And each time a kid would run into the mirror, like I would cringe because you could almost feel their pain. At the same time, like that comes from after the anticipation, because they're in this video, you know that it's about to happen. You're just wondering which one is it going to be that they run into. And so I kind of got a few laughs from that. You can feel free to watch those videos later. just not during the sermon, okay? Last week, though, as we started this series on basic training, we looked at this idea um, that we are preparing for battle. And we're using Ephesians chapter 6 as our base passage. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, because we'll be getting there in just a little bit. But we learned that we are in a battle. We talked about how God wins and how He has given us everything we need to be victorious as well. And so this week, we are looking at the enemy, And sometimes it feels like our enemy is kind of like a house of mirrors, like it seems like he is all around us. Or maybe we are certain that he is in this one place right over here when actually he's somewhere else. Or maybe he causes us to focus on a specific area that we don't need to be focusing on. Or there's even times that maybe we think we can step out on this certain path because it's safe when all the while. He's leading us to this dead end that's right in front of us. You see, as we take a look at our enemy this morning, there's actually 10 points that I want to make. And as you hear that, I don't want you to worry. I'll get you out before lunch. But I do want you to hear this idea of the enemy. It's a topic that we don't focus a whole lot on. Like, maybe we talk about it in generalities, but we don't spend a lot of focused time on it. And if I asked, like, who is our enemy? Probably in this crowd, you get a lot of people that would say, well, Satan, I know that he is our enemy. But then if I asked, well, what is he like? And there's probably a lot of different answers that would be told. And some of those would be correct, and some of them would be incorrect. And so 10 points may seem like a lot. But I want you to understand this, that there may be something that you hear today that's like, I didn't really need to know that, like, I already grasped that. But maybe your neighbor, that's the one that they needed to hear today. And so we're going to focus on the enemy this morning as we jump into our training. And the question is, what exactly do we need to know? Well, the first thing is this. We need to understand the enemy. We need to understand the enemy. You've probably heard this saying, ignorance is bliss. And it means that if you don't know about something, then it's going to help you not to worry about it. And at times that statement is true. But then there are other times that it's not true at all. Just because you don't know about something doesn't mean that everything is gonna work out just fine. If you're looking at the idea of a battle or a war, the leaders, they don't just close their eyes and hope that everything is going to work out. They don't begin the fight having absolutely no knowledge about the opponent that they are fighting. And in moments where they don't have a lot of information, they do whatever they can to learn, and then they come up with a strategy. Because if you don't know your enemy, you won't know how to prepare, and you will be caught off guard, and most likely, you won't only lose, but you'll get slaughtered. And that's why it is so important to know who it is that we are fighting against. And especially in this battle that we're looking at, one that has eternal consequences, we don't want to be caught off guard or be standing unprepared. And so we need to understand the enemy. So secondly, this is what we need to know, that people are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. And this is so important because in our Ephesians passage, we are told who the enemy is. So in Ephesians chapter 6, if we start at verse 10, this is what Paul writes. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the ruler's against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, as clear as words can say, we see that people are not the enemy. If someone has flesh and blood, they are not our adversary. Man, it's certainly easy to see people as our enemy, though, isn't it? I mean, people, they can cause a lot of hurt to each one of us. And sometimes the way a person treats us again and again causes us to have absolutely no pleasant feelings towards that person whatsoever. Or there are moments when you're watching from afar and it seems like there is nothing but evil in their actions. Oftentimes we group anyone who has opinions completely opposite to us as the enemy. And those can be moral or political or philosophical or even religious differences. But Paul says people are not the enemy. The truth is they're merely a conduit. We can see people. We can hear people. We can touch people. And that makes it easy to label them as the enemy. But they're not. And oftentimes the enemy will work through other people's actions. But again, they are the fruit of the problem, not the problem itself. And if you see people as the enemy, you will never be fighting the right battle. So when it comes to the enemy, the third point that we need to know is that the enemy fights primarily in the unseen world, in this unseen realm. Last week, we mentioned how there's so much of the battle that we cannot see. And in a sermon that I listened to this week, the speaker was talking about the spiritual realm in reference to this battle that we fight. And he said, Scripture teaches us that we have blessings in the spiritual realm, that Jesus is seated in the spiritual realm, that our angelic helpers are in the spiritual realm, that our enemy is in the spiritual realm, and therefore the main battle is in the spiritual realm. And if we fight battles that are only physical in nature, then we will not get to the root of the problems because the problem isn't there. We're only going to be treating the symptoms. And when you're sick, You don't want medicine just to stop the symptoms. You want to be cured of the problem. And so we must navigate the spiritual realm to be able to battle correctly in the seen world. And it's been said, if all you see is what you see, then you do not see all there is to be seen. As we look to understand our enemy, we must realize that he fights primarily in the unseen realm. Fourthly, this morning, as we're looking at the enemy, people are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. And I know that I've said that before, but I want you to hear the weight of that statement that our enemy uses people as a result of the spiritual battle. But there's always more to what we can see. Like, why is a person acting the way that they are? How did they come up with that solution or opinion? What types of sin have a hold on them at this moment? What thoughts and lives lies about themselves are influencing them or constantly screaming at them? And those aren't excuses for bad behavior, but we must realize that they do play into this spiritual battle that affects so much of the physical. And as easy as it is to point fingers, we must realize that people are not the enemy. Our text tells us that our enemy is the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil. And when we look at that grouping, we're told that they are led by Satan. And so as we learn about our enemy, the fifth thing that we need to know is Satan's background. Where did Satan come from? I imagine quite a few people would say something like, well, he used to be an angel. And uh, somehow he rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven, and now he roams the earth with all those other angels who were cast down with him. If I were to ask you this question, do you know if any of that's actually biblical? Would you be able to stand strong with an answer? Or those just things you've heard from people and you think, well, I think the Bible says it, would you be able to point out exactly where some of those things can be found? So here's what I want to do. I want to actually give you some passages that people use when they look at this idea of the fall of Satan, okay? And there's a text speaking to the king of Tyre in the book of Ezekiel, and many people feel that this is deeper than just speaking towards a human king, and so see if you can hear references that people hear about Satan in it. Starting in Ezekiel 28, verses 14 through 18, it says, You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Though your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. And so I made fire come out from you and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. There's also a passage in Isaiah which references Babylon, but again, most scholars think that there's deeper meanings behind this. In Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12, it says, Now you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who were once laid low, the nations. You said in your heart... I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? the man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities, it would not let his his captives come home. There's a verse in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, that Jesus responds by saying, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And some people feel like that's a reference to Satan's downfall. In Revelation chapter nine, verse one, it says the fifth angel sounded his trumpet. And I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth, and the star was given the key the shaft of the abyss. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 12, verses three and four, it says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And then you jump down to verses seven through nine, it says, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, each of these verses that I just read are passages where we get our picture of Satan's glory and his rebellion and one-third of the angels being cast down with him. And even, then even this idea of references to his future destruction. And he has many names or titles, which includes Satan, which means adversary, or devil, which means accuser. Maybe you've heard Lucifer or Morning Star, Prince of Darkness, Beelzebub, the evil one, just to name a few. See, regardless of all the details of Satan's background and which of those verses you do think applies to him or maybe you don't think apply to him, as well as other verses, here's one thing that we need to know about Satan, that he is real. He's real. He's not a made-up figment of imagination or man's attempt not to take blame for the wrongdoing that is being done. Satan is our enemy, and God wants us To stand strong against him. So that's the fifth point. So in studying for our enemy, the sixth fact that we need to learn is this. People are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. Just in case that truth hasn't made its way through your mind, I wanted to state it again. Because as much as it may feel like it, people are not the enemy. Seventh. The seventh thing we need to know is that Satan is a strong enemy. He's a strong enemy. Let's look at a couple of verses that are for certain about him. So in first Peter, chapter five, verse eight, maybe you've heard this one. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour or in John ten ten, where it says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or in John chapter eight, verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. And there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 44, it says, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. As I look at these verses. The enemy wants to take you out, Devourer, thief, murderer, liar. Like, he doesn't feel the least bit guilty when he promises something and then doesn't live up to it. He has no remorse for the pain in people's lives to when they have followed his ways. He isn't interested in your loyalty to him but simply your disloyalty to the Father. And we need to take him seriously. In fact, in Jude, verse 9, we read that Michael, the archangel, didn't even bring a slanderous accusation against him when they were in a dispute. Instead, he uses the authority of God. The question might be, well, why? Because Satan is one to take seriously. And unfortunately, if you look around in our culture, like he's become this little red guy on our shoulder that just kind of whispers into our ear. He represents evil still, but sometimes he's also kind of come to represent, ah, oh, but this is like what the fun life looks like. Or he's come to represent this idea that it's, it's not so bad. And so maybe we can follow these ways. And that's really what life is all about. But you see, that is exactly what he does to take us out. It often isn't yelling from the front but it's these subtle temptations and thoughts that lead us down darker roads. In fact, in C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, the older demon is teaching the younger demon how to make people fall, and it often comes from this idea of Satan being crafty, a tempter, parading around as an angel of light, and a schemer. In fact, remember, in Ephesians, we are told to put on the full armor of God so that we can take the stand against the devil's schemes his trickery, the way that he wants to take you out. And each piece of armor is going to help us to stand, and that's why we're looking at them over the next few weeks. But for now, I want you to understand that he is great at knowing which tactics to use on you, because you're not his first target. And if we keep his, uh, yeah, if he can keep his actual identity from us, like he's hidden from us, and we're only looking for this red character with a pitchfork who's yelling loudly to do evil, then he's got the upper hand because you don't see him working. Satan, he wants to trick you. He wants to use these deceptive strategies to draw you out from the protective covering of God. It's what he did in the Garden of Eden, and it's what he continues to do today. But as we wear God's armor, we are protected, even if evil comes all around us. It's kind of like standing under an umbrella. It doesn't stop the rain, but it keeps you safe. As you wear the armor, it won't stop evil all around you, but it will protect you. And if you begin to use that phrase, it's not that bad. Be careful, because you are surrendering territory to the enemy. Don't give the devil even a foothold, because he will take that and run with it. I remember hearing a story when I was growing up about this Haitian pastor telling a parable to his congregation about how a certain man wanted to sell his house for $2,000, and another man wanted very badly to buy it, but because he was poor, he couldn't afford the full price. And so after much bargaining, the owner agreed to sell the house for half the original price with just one stipulation, that he would retain small ownership of one small nail protruding from just over the door. And so after several years, the original owner wanted the house back, but the new owner was unwilling to sell it. And so the first owner uh, went out and he found the carcass of a dead dog and he hung it from that single nail that he still owned. And soon the house became unlivable and the family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail. And the Haitians pastor conclusion was, if we leave the devil with even one small peg In our life, then he will return to hang his rotten garbage on it, making it unfit for Christ's habitation. You see, Satan, he is a powerful enemy. And if we don't take him seriously, he will have his way with us. He wants to stop us from becoming what we can be through the power of God. And I saw a quote this week by Elisa Bevere that stated, I believe that the attacks on your life have much more to do with who you might be in the future than who you have been in the past. And I thought about that, and I think Satan looks for things in our past and our present, and be- he chooses to use those things to try to stop us from becoming who Jesus wants to make us into. And he is good at leading us down destructive paths and actions Because he is a strong enemy. So that's the seventh thing that we need to know. The eighth thing that we need to know about the enemy is that people are not the enemy. I'm just making sure we're still on the same page. That's it. Ninth ninth thing we need to know about our enemy is that Satan is a limited enemy. He's a limited enemy. This fact is just as important as knowing that Satan is powerful. Yes, he is strong, he is deceitful, and he influences so many, but he is not God. He is not God. He is not on the same level as God. He is a created being. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He doesn't know what's going on inside of your head. He is not everywhere at once. And yes, he does have a lot of demons, but he himself is not everywhere at once. Even in the book of Revelation, we read that there are times that Jesus says, this is how long suffering or tribulation can happen. You see, Satan doesn't even get to decide that because he is limited Even in reference to us, James, chapter four, verse seven says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We have power to say no to Satan and to follow the true commander. And also contrary to what people may say, Satan does not make you do something. He does not make you do something. The only time that we see he is in control scripturally is when there's a demon inside your body. And though that can and still does happen today, it is not the norm, especially if the Spirit of God lives inside of you. So Satan cannot make you do something. I also want to add this one more thing about Satan being limited. When this world ends, Satan will not be in charge of hell Like, that's a picture that a lot of times we have. But Scripture tells us that he will be tormented day and night, forever and ever, that hell was created for him. He's not in charge of hell because that is not a power that has ever been given to him. His punishment for the rebellion is eternal separation as well. Which leads us to the 10th and final point. And if you're looking at every other one, you might think that this one is all about People are not the enemy, but it's not. That'd be a great 10th point, but here's what I wanna leave you with, that Satan is a defeated enemy. Satan is a defeated enemy. Right now, in our battle, it's not a question of who is going to win. In Genesis 3, we are told that Satan will be crushed, though he strikes the heel. In 1 John, chapter three, verse eight, we read that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Revelation talks about Satan being confined. And whether that means there's a literal thousand years someday or it's a figurative number referring to what Jesus did at the cross, we need to understand that Jesus took away Satan's power when he died. And death, it no longer has a sting because we know what happens afterwards. And all the lies and the shame and the guilt that Satan wants us to have to carry and continues to whisper or yell loudly in your ear, those things can all be forgiven. Nothing Satan has can trump what Jesus has done. He is defeated. And I heard about and I read about this painting called Checkmate this week. And so this is the picture back here and you see Satan playing a game of chess against someone and the opponent is feeling down because he is about to lose and his soul is on the line. Well, there was this chess champion and he was on vacation in Europe and he loved visiting art galleries and museums. And in one of those art galleries, he came across this painting and he stared at it for quite a while. In fact, quite a long while. In fact, after six hours of looking deeply at this painting, he asked someone at the gallery, is there a chessboard anywhere? And so they brought him a chessboard, and he set up every piece just as it was on the picture, and he looked some more. And then it said that this chess champion said, young man, I wish that you could hear me now. There is one move left, and it's yours. You see, many of us have been duped into thinking that the devil has won, or that he's the final decision maker, or that we are simply his puppets, and some feel that he is running the entire show right now, but that is not true. You get to make the final move. In fact, all of life has been this series of moves and counter moves, if we're looking at this chess game, not between equal opponents. But in this spiritual chess game, God made the first move when he created angels. And so Lucifer decides, okay, well, I'm going to rebel and then gets thrown out of heaven. And so God says, okay, I'm going to make man a little bit lower than the angels. And Satan counters that going, okay, I'm going to take these men, Adam and Eve, and I'm going to turn everything in earth over to my control. I'm going to have them choose to follow me. And God says, okay. And he eventually makes this redemptive covering for Adam and Eve so that they can continue to connect with God, that that relationship will still be there. Satan says, "Okay, I'm going to take Cain and Abel, and I'm going to cut off this godly line. God says, here's Seth, and I'm going to have men continue to call upon my name. Satan says, here's a man named Nimrod, who's like this mighty warrior and civilization such as Babylon and Assyrian are going to come from them. God says, here's Abram. I'm going to use him. I'm going to create my own people to follow after me. Satan says, okay, well, watch this. I'm going to trap them in Egypt for years and years and years, to which God says, okay, here's Moses. that chooses to lead the people out of slavery. And the whole Old Testament is move, counter-move, move, move, counter-move, to when you get to these points of 400 years of silence where it's almost like both opponents looking at the chessboard, trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And God says, okay, I'm going to take care of this myself. And he becomes a man. And Satan says, okay, and so out in this wilderness, I'm going to tempt him. And look, you can have all this power. All you have to do is this to celebrate me. And God says, here's the word of God, and this is what I'm going to use because this is truth, to which Satan says, okay, this is the move that I'm going to do, and he kills the Son of God upon a cross, thinking that he has won. And God says, okay, here's the final move. And three days later, Jesus arose from the grave and God simply looked at Satan and said, checkmate. There are no more moves that you have to make. And that final move that God made is the move that you and I can hold on to for victory. We just have to cling to Jesus. And Those words, checkmate, don't have to scare us anymore. It's true. We have an enemy. People are not it. We have an enemy who has been around a long time, and he is powerful, but he is also limited, and he has already been defeated. And that is great news. And maybe as we've been talking about the enemy this morning, like you know that he has you in his grasp. You fully comprehend that he has been lying to you, that he has deceived you. And you're in a spot right now that you feel like you cannot win. But you've also heard the truth this morning that God has already won the war and that he has given us what we need to win as well. Jesus has done the work on the cross that was needed to rescue you. And if you want to follow him with your life or if there are spiritual battle wounds that you want someone to pray for you, then I encourage you to make your way to one of these two decision points as we sing this song. Because Jesus is Lord, and He has already won, so what move do you plan to make next? Let's stand and sing.